Hey ladies, does listening to true crime podcasts make you want to hide under your bed and never talk to men again? Well, fear not, sis. The queens of the female dating strategy podcast have your back. Our weekly podcast arms women with the tools to spot red flags in the shady men and navigate the treacherous dating world to avoid scammers, liars, and serial killers. The female dating strategy has been covered extensively in the mainstream media for our grounded yet controversial takes in publications such as Vice, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, The Daily Mail, and Jezebel. Join me, I'm Ro, and my co-stars, Savannah, and I'm Lilith, on a journey into finding personal power while dragging shady men by their ever-withering hair follicles. Part social commentators, part ruthless strategists, we dissect dating, relationships, sex, pop culture, and politics to their most raw and real parts. You can find the Female Dating Strategy podcast on Apple or Spotify or any podcast platform. You can also find the podcast on our website at www.thefemaledatingstrategy.com. Thanks for listening, queens, and get ready to level up, sis. True Crime fans, I'm Katie Accardo, and this is True Crime in the 50, a podcast where I take a look at the craziest, most disturbing, and realest crimes from each of the 50 states. We'll talk about the homicides, serial killers, disappearances, and frauds that rocked each and every state across this country. Our 28th state is Nevada, and here are some fun facts about the great state of Nevada. Nicknamed the Silver State, America's largest silver deposit, the Comstock Lode, was found there in 1859, but Nevada is actually the country's most gold-producing state and the fourth largest in the world. There are more than 100 miles of underground tunnels in the Comstock mining area today. The name Nevada comes from the Spanish word Nevada, which means snowclad, and refers to the snowy Sierra Nevada mountain range there. There are more than 30 mountain ranges in the state, making it the one with the most. And many of the ranges are taller than 10,000 feet. 87% of the land in the state is owned by the federal government. Las Vegas, Nevada, not surprisingly, has more hotel rooms than anywhere else on the planet, with that number being a staggering 150,000. Half the population of the state lives in the city of Las Vegas. Over 40 million tourists visit Las Vegas every year. The Hoover Dam is the biggest public works project in the history of the United States. Nevada is also one of the driest states in the country as it only gets seven inches of rain on average per year, and that is not a lot. And most of the United States' wild horse population is in Nevada. Area 51, located in the southern part of the state, is a common name for a highly classified United States Air Force facility and is thought to support the development and testing of experimental aircraft and weapons systems. 
but the fact that there is intense secrecy surrounding the base has made it an easy target of conspiracy theories, especially of those surrounding unidentified flying objects or UFOs. And these last two facts are very random. Kangaroo rats, which are found in the Mojave Desert, can live their whole lives without ever even drinking a drop of water. And finally, people in Nevada consume over 60,000 pounds of shrimp every day, which is more than the whole rest of the country combined. Must be those huge Las Vegas buffets. Some famous people who hail from the great state of Nevada include Matthew Gray Gubler, Jenna Jameson, Andre Agassi, Sonny Bono, Jenna Malone, Charisma Carpenter, and Pat Nixon. You may have heard of Steve Wynn, the billionaire hotel magnate who, over the years, transformed the city of Las Vegas, Nevada, with his sparkling and lavish hotels all along the famous strip. But did you know that his daughter, Kevin Wynn, was kidnapped for ransom at the age of 26? What happened during the kidnapping could have been right out of the movie Ocean's Eleven, which also coincidentally was set in Las Vegas. But for this story, I first need to tell you about Steve Wynn himself, how he came to be so wealthy, and how he may be somewhat of a criminal himself. Steve Wynn was born on January 27, 1942, in New Haven, Connecticut. He changed his last name to Wynn from Weinberg. He received a Bachelor of Arts degree in English Literature from the University of Pennsylvania, where he was a member of the Sigma Alpha Mu fraternity. Right before graduation, his father, with whom he was close, died during a routine heart surgery. When his father died, he left Steve around $350,000 in gambling debts. Partly because of this, Steve Wynn relinquished a position at Yale Law School to run his parents' bingo parlor in Wason's Corner, Maryland. Steve Wynn found out that he had retinitis pigmentosa at a young age. This is a genetic eye disease that can worsen over time, so today Steve Wynn is almost completely blind. In 1967, he moved to Las Vegas, where he purchased a stake in the Frontier Hotel and Casino and then the Golden Nugget. The Mirage was his first major casino venture, which he opened on November 22, 1989, and featured lush rainforests, a volcano, and the Siegfried and Roy Duo Tiger Act. It was also the first casino to use security cameras full-time on every single gaming table. Wynn financed his hotel with high-yield bonds, also known as junk bonds, which were popular back in the day, issued to him by Michael Milken. And if you don't think Steve Wynn himself is a criminal, we will get to that later, he certainly surrounded himself his whole life with them. Milken was indicted on racketeering and securities fraud charges and insider trading in 1989 and is currently barred from the securities industry by the SEC. In 1963, Steve Wynn married Elaine Farrell Pascal and they had two daughters, 
Kevin and Jillian. The couple divorced in 1986, but in 1991, they remarried only to divorce again in 2010. Wynn's current wife is Andrea Denenza Hissom, whom he married on April 30th, 2011. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, this is Ross, the host of Smells Like Humans, a show about interesting and quirky human behavior. We bring humor, empathy, and warmth to topics such as relationships, dating, work, self-compassion, weddings, phobias, aging parents, travel mishaps, death, and many more. Ever wonder what happens at a cuddle party? We talk about it. Free-range kids in restaurants? We've got some thoughts. Bedtime stories for adults? We're on it. Light, fun, unscripted conversation and personal stories. Please join us by clicking the link in the show notes. Another run-in Steve Wynn had with another criminal was Joe Francis. Remember that guy from the Girls Gone Wild nonsense? In 2008, the Nevada District Attorney prosecuted Francis for writing a bad check to Wynn to cover a $2 million gambling debt, which he collected in a separate civil case. Wynn then said that Francis threatened to kill him, so he filed a defamation lawsuit and was awarded $7.5 million in damages. Francis then allegedly repeated the death threat on television, so Steve Wynn added a second defamation lawsuit against him and was awarded $40 million in compensatory and punitive damages. Um, okay, Joe Francis. Like, it is not 1999 anymore. How are you even relevant, and how do you have $40 million? Like, you don't. Joe Francis's criminal past is lengthy as well. He has been accused of tax evasion, bribery, false imprisonment, assault, and record-keeping violations. In 2003, Francis went to jail for most of the year for a bunch of stuff, and in 2011, three women accused him of keeping them at his house against their will. Cool. He was convicted of that in 2013, and he called the jurors mentally retarded and said that they should be euthanized. I just wanted to go off on a tangent about Joe Francis for you all, a little trip down memory lane, because he sounds like such a cool guy. Yet another criminal Steve Wynn associated with was Donald Trump. Trump claimed that Wynn used a private investigator as a double agent to secretly record conversations with him. And basically he did. Luis Rodriguez was a former Los Angeles police officer and investigator for the IRS who Wynn hired during a legal battle with Trump when he was trying to build a mirage in Atlantic City. Rodriguez said that he had a change of heart when talking to Trump on Wynn's behalf because he felt Trump used his efforts to block Wynn from building his hotel in a, quote, immoral and unethical manner to cause financial harm, unquote. But the two men settled the suit in 2000 and ended up becoming BFFs afterward. 
Trump even attended Wynn's wedding in Las Vegas in 2011. Ah, how cute. Now we come to Steve Wynn himself, who has some criminal allegations against him. In 2018, a former employee of his, Angelica Limkakao, claims she was fired, blacklisted, and intimidated into silence after she voiced concerns to the president of the win, Andrew Pascal. Lim Kakao, who was a manager at one of the salons in the win, claimed that one of her employees, a woman named Angela, had been raped and impregnated by Wynn. After being told of this, Angela never returned to work. The courts decided in favor of the hotel on that case. In 2005, a manicurist at one of Wynn's hotels claimed he forced her to disrobe and to lie on a table so that he could have sex with her. Another employee said that she was forced to give him a hand job after he would receive massages from her and that he would repeatedly ask her to use her mouth instead. The Wall Street Journal spoke to 150 former employees of Wynn's for an article on him, and most of them claimed that they would do everything they could to hide from him, sometimes even running into bathrooms to avoid being alone with him. So that is the deal with Steve Wynn. Today, he is worth about $2.4 billion, which makes him around the 279th richest person in the country. And that is also why, on a summer evening, way back in 1993, his 26-year-old adult daughter was kidnapped for ransom. If you think some of the characters in this episode are crazy, check out Bogey and Skeeter, along with Armando and Rosa, in the book Incentives, satirical fiction that will have you laughing out loud as the author takes on Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, and everybody in between. Just go to georgefranklinauthor.com for a great read. That's georgefranklinauthor.com. Our other sponsor is HelpYouFind.me. HelpYouFind.me is the world's first secure end-to-end encrypted if-I-go-missing file service. Just think about if you or one of your loved ones went missing or were in trouble. Even in today's technology-focused world, it can take 48 hours or longer for law enforcement to begin to look for you, any legal processes to commence, or for any important history or personal information to be recovered. No one can or should afford to wait that long. That is where HelpYouFind.me comes in. With this totally secure and encrypted service, you can compile your own online If I Go Missing file that can give only your most trusted people access to vital information much sooner than the authorities or anyone else. Every person you share your information with has his or her own access rules. Not even HelpYouFind.me has access to any of your information. That's how safe it is. And as valued listeners of True Crime in the 50 podcast, I am offering you a 10% discount if you sign up for any one of the varying levels of services so you can find one that suits your individual needs. Just go to www.helpyoufind.me forward slash Nevada 10 and you are on your way to feeling a whole lot safer and secure. 
That's www.helpyoufind.me forward slash Nevada 10 to be able to save 10% for the valued true crime in the podcast listeners. And now back to our story. On July 26th, 1993, Kevin Wynn worked out and then went to dinner with her mother, father, sister Jillian, and friends at an upscale Mirage Casino restaurant in Las Vegas. She then went to do some shopping. At the time, Kevin Wynn lived in a high-end condominium in the Spanish Trails Complex at the corner of Rainbow and Tropicana Streets. The complex was a very private one with luxury mansions near the Spanish Trails Golf Course and Country Club. Across the street from the entrance to Spanish Trails was a Carl's Jr. fast food restaurant. She pulled into her home and entered the house through her garage door, still carrying her shopping bags. Kevin noticed her answering machine light was blinking, so she put her bags down and headed toward it. Suddenly, she heard a noise behind her. As she turned around to see what it was, two men with stocking masks over their faces ran toward her from her living room. They had been in her condo for hours, lying in wait for Kevin. The two men grabbed her from behind and spun her around to face them. One was tall and heavy with dark skin. The other was shorter, fair, and fit. Kevin, clearly distraught and upset, was shaking and crying when the kidnappers told her to calm down. "'What do you want?' she asked them. "'We want money. We just want the casino's money,' was their reply. The shorter, fairer man, who seemed to be the one in charge, then told Kevin to call her father. Kevin dialed his number at his Mirage office, but he wasn't there. She then suggested that she should call him on his cellular car phone, which back in the day not many people had. Steve Wynn picked up on that. Dad, it's Kevin, she said, crying into the phone. I've been kidnapped. Unfortunately, Kevin Wynn was known to be kind of a prankster, so Steve Wynn thought at first that she was joking. But then, when he heard her crying get louder, he knew she was in trouble. Don't worry, honey, I'm going to take care of this, he promised her. The kidnappers then got on the phone and told Steve Wynn, Listen carefully. We've got your daughter. Go directly to the hotel to the casino cage and stand in front of it so you will be easily visible and wait for another phone call from us. So Steve Wynn did. He was quoted as saying that during this time, he was frightened beyond description and very confused. Your brain is jumbled. Your brain doesn't function. I knew I needed help. I felt if I used my cellular phone to call for help, that they would hear me and it would mean her death. This is an interview with Steve Wynn done after the kidnapping. About your vertical and the ups and downs in your life. One of the most traumatic times in your life was probably when your daughter was kidnapped. Was, would you say that was... Uh, that was it. The, the, she was 28 years old. It was a Monday night. Never forget that. How, how did you handle that? Well, uh, I was... I'd had dinner with my daughter and friends from Connecticut. And uh, she was going home to her her condo and I was going home to my house 
and uh, I'd taken some extra time to walk my friends back to their villa at the hotel. And I, I was driven home, and I was getting out of my car, and the car phone rang, and it was my daughter. Mm -hmm. I said, Daddy, I've been kidnapped. And she started crying, and a man took the phone away from her and says, We have your daughter. If you do exactly what you say, we won't kill her. If you don't, you'll never see her alive again. And as it dawned on me that this wasn't a joke, uh, it's very difficult to explain. It's not like TB. It, it, it's not something that's easy to relate secondhand. But you, you experience what I guess is a form of hysteria. You know that we talk to ourselves with a voice in our head almost all of our lives, and that voice never changes. It doesn't get any older. Right. It's the same voice that was there when right. we were 16. Right. Right. But that voice speeds up as if it was a record played at the wrong speed, as if you fast-forwarded a tape. And you say, wait, wait, smoke, whoa. And you get frightened. You don't look frightened. You, you sit still. You talk, and I lost my temper and said, if anything happened to that child, I'd spend the rest of my life finding you, whoever that guy was. So the first the reaction was anger. I was anger, and I said, I'll find you if it takes the rest of my life, and I'll make you curse your mother for being born so she can have you if you hurt that child. And my child was 28 years old at the time. He said, it won't do you any good to get angry if you want to see this kid alive again. And then I settled right down and said, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to go back to the hotel. Where are you? I told him I was at home, in my car, in my garage. He said, go back to the hotel. Don't call anybody. Don't see anybody. But when you get to the hotel, go to the cashier's cage. It was really a scheme to rob the hotel, the Mirage. Go to the cashier's cage, you know, the place in the yes, middle of the yes, casino yes. where you exchange your money. And you will get a phone call there, and you will be watched. So do what we say, and we'll give you back your girl. And I was wearing a pair of string pants and a Hawaiian shirt. It was summertime. And hot in Las Vegas. And I went back, and the, the surveillance cameras in the casino chronicle my movements in front of the cage. I got to see myself after the fact. And if you saw me walking back and forth, I looked like I just... Oh, no. But I remember that my kneecap was shaking, and I couldn't get it to stop. Really? The things you remember? Yeah, yeah. That my kneecap quivered, and all I could say is that if anything happens to this child, it'll be the end of my life and my wife's life. Not sure what string pants are. Maybe he meant drawstring pants. Uh, also, through all of my research, I mostly found that Kevin Wynn was 26 years old when she was kidnapped. There was one source that said she was 27. As you could hear, Steve Wynn just said twice that she was 28. I, I got nothing on that one. Like I said, most of my research found that she was 26. I mean, he's a father. Do father know, know their kid's age? I mean, I don't know. I'm not sure my dad has ever known my age. So anyway, the kidnappers called again not long after the first call. They demanded that Steve Wynn remove 
$2.5 million from the vault. Steve Wynn immediately balked at that suggestion. He told the kidnappers that that was stupid because that much money would alert the regulatory authorities. He said, and I quote, you can't do that. It will cause a complete stir. The kidnappers then asked if $1.45 million would alert the authorities, to which Wynn responded, how the hell would I know? The chairman of the board doesn't come down to the vault every day. Steve Wynn and the kidnappers were kind of at a standstill at this point. But the kidnappers held their ground and told Wynn it had to be $1.45 million and to put it in small bills. Steve Wynn then told him he was worried about marked bills and exploding dye packs at that point, but he called his casino manager down and told him to collect $1.45 million all in $100 bills and to put it in a bag. So if my math is correct here, and it is usually not, that is what, 14,500 separate bills? Something like that. Meanwhile, the two men were still at Kevin Wynn's house holding her hostage. One of the men told her that they would be taking some pictures of her for insurance purposes, you know, just in case her father didn't come through with the money. He also told her that if she cooperated, then everything would turn out fine. He told her to strip down to her underwear and placed a pair of dark sunglasses over her eyes to cover the fact that she was actually wearing a blindfold. Kevin Wynn thought for sure that she would be raped by one or both of the men, but she was not. Then the taller one of the two posed with her in the dining alcove of her condominium and threatened to call the National Enquirer to post the photos if she was not complicit. This I do not really get, okay? What a lame attempt at so-called insurance. I mean, Also, don't you think that if you were being kidnapped and held for ransom in your condominium that you may be like, yeah, go ahead, sell my pictures to the National Enquirer? I mean, I think I might, but anyway, what do I know? Back at the Mirage Hotel, Steve Wynn's casino cage manager handed him the bag of money that he described as dense and very heavy. Steve Wynn then held it in his arms like a baby and walked out to his car in full view of all of the casino guests. Again, just like Ocean's Eleven. No one was the wiser at that point. The kidnappers had directed Steve Wynn to get into his chauffeured vehicle driven by his trusty driver, Albert, who was to take the money to the parking lot of Sunny's Saloon near a 7-Eleven only half a mile from the Mirage. Currently, that location is on Sammy Davis Way. He was to then go to the nearby 7-Eleven to play slots and kill time and wait for the payphone outside of it to ring. He did just that, except the driver wasn't Albert. Steve Wynn had smartly gotten one of his armed security guards, Charles Price, who looked like Albert, to drive him to the drop-off spot. You know, just in case something went down. Back at Kevin Wynn's home, one of the kidnappers had left and had gone to pick up a third accomplice that was working with them at the Carl's Jr., which was right across the street from the Spanish Trails apartments. 
They then went to the 7-Eleven to wait until they saw Steve Wynn's car arrive. The remaining kidnapper at Kevin Wynn's home then bound her hands behind her back and told her to lie down in the back of her own Audi. He then buried her under a mound of blankets and told her to be quiet. As they drove, Kevin tried to engage with her kidnapper. She asked him questions so she could have a chance at remembering his voice if she ever needed to. She also made a conscious effort to be aware of how long they had been driving so that maybe she could figure out where they were going. Pretty smart, this Wynn family, if you ask me. Pretty smart. And Kevin kind of did figure it out. She realized that she knew that they were at McCarran International, Las Vegas' airport, when the kidnapper started to drive the car up long circular ramps after securing a ticket for parking at the ticket booth. After the kidnapper found out that there were no available parking spaces in the short-term parking lot, he drove back down in winding circles, all the while with Kevin Wynn bound in the back seat and engaged with the employee at the ticket booth, who told him there would be no charge because there were no spaces left. The kidnapper had no choice but to drive the car to the long-term parking lot and left Kevin Wynn there, and he walked away. Steve Wynn had his fake Albert driver drop off the money in the parking lot of the saloon and went over to the 7-Eleven to wait for the call about his daughter's whereabouts. Finally, at a little before midnight, the payphone rang. The kidnappers told him that Kevin Wynn could be found in her own car in the parking lot at McCarran Airport. Steve Wynn, wasting no more time, got back in the car with his armed security guard and sped over to the airport, where he himself located Kevin's car and hurriedly rescued her from her terrible ordeal. So father and daughter were reunited, and luckily, Kevin Wynn was not hurt, only shaken up. But who were these kidnappers that had gotten away with the crime of holding her hostage and taking over $1 million in cash? The FBI immediately set up camp the next morning to get to work and nail the bad guys. A former Buffalo cop, George Ligert, was part of that task force. Ligert realized the closest public phone to Kevin Wynn's home address was the payphone at the Carl's Jr. across the street from the entrance to the Spanish Trails Reserve. He surmised that the kidnappers probably would have made many, if not all, of the calls to Steve Wynn and or to each other from that payphone as they were canvassing her place. So the FBI set about pulling the records of all the calls from those payphones and found one number that had been called frequently. This number was also called from the set of payphones attached to the 7-Eleven, where Wynn and his driver were told to play slots and wait for a call back from the kidnappers. Coincidence? I think not. The phone number belonged to a residence in Sacramento, California. The owners of this residence were two sisters, Mary and Glenda McBride, who, when contacted by the FBI, lied and said that they received no such calls. Turns out, the women were the girlfriends of first cousins Jake Sherwood and Anthony Watkins, who were two of the kidnappers. 
The other kidnapper and the ringleader of the whole gang they would come to find was the man by the name of Ray Cuddy. They found Ray because many calls were made from both payphones to the owner of a cell phone, very rare for back in 1993, and that phone belonged to Ray Cuddy. So just who were these men? Ray Cuddy was an all-around ne'er-do-well who lived and worked sometimes in Newport Beach, California. He was part owner of a gym there, but had a falling out with his other partners. He sued them for ownership issues and was awarded $500,000 in a lawsuit only to have it reversed. After that, he was without the money and out of work, so he moved to Sacramento. He got a job at a gas station pumping gas, and yes, kids who are young, younger than I at least, you may not know this, but when you used to roll up at the gas station, there would be employees who would pump your gas for you. Very fancy, I know. I believe in New Jersey, that is still the case, but I may be incorrect. Some New Jerseyan out there, let me know. Anyway, Ray Cuddy had a fellow employee down at the gas station named Jake Sherwood. Pretty soon, Ray Cuddy up and left his fancy gas-pumping job to move to Las Vegas, where he got a job as a printer at American Printing on Fremont Street. His friend Jimmy Kazaya owned the place, and it was with Kazaya that he came up with the idea to kidnap Kevin Wynn for ransom. Kazaya got Cuddy into some sort of sports gambling club where some of Vegas's elite also gambled, among them Kevin Wynn. Perhaps Kazaya and Cuddy came up with the plan of how to nab Kevin Wynn and hold her for ransom, and Kazaya thought he was joking or chickened out, but either way, Cuddy himself decided to go ahead with a brilliant and completely foolproof plan. What? a moron. To assist him, he called up his old buddy, Jake Sherwood, and told him he would get him out to Las Vegas if he would help him pull off this heist. Oh, and he told him to bring a friend to be in on it. Jake Sherwood thought of his cousin, Anthony Watkins. Watkins said he was in, so the two men hightailed it out to Las Vegas. And the rest, as you know, was history. They pulled off the gig and were on their merry way with millions of dollars of Steve Wynn's money. Problem was, and you could probably guess as much, they weren't very discreet with the millions of dollars. In fact, they were downright obnoxious. The cousins headed to St. Louis, of all places, with almost half a million dollars. Along the way, and once there, they spent 70000 on cars, jewelry, and motorcycles. But Cuddy, well, Ray Cuddy kind of screwed the pooch with this one. With his almost $1 million cut, he bought some jewelry as well, a very expensive watch, and a very nice-sounding pair of ostrich-skin boots. Talk about understated and indiscreet but he also attempted to buy a $200,000 Ferrari in cash in Newport Beach, California. More specifically, 
in the $100 bills in cash that were given to him from the Mirage Casino. You see, if someone attempts to buy those types of goods in cash, a car dealership is required to report that to the IRS. That Newport Beach car dealership had been taking payments from Ray Cuddy in three installments, but it never reported the cash purchase attempt to the IRS like it was supposed to. Fortunately, the FBI had been hot on Cuddy's trail, so when he attempted to make the third payment installment of $70,000 on the Ferrari, 14 agents surrounded him. When they arrested him, they found $81,000 worth of $100 bills in his car and another $90,000 in his Newport Beach hotel room. In all, almost $1 million of the ransom money was eventually recovered from the three men. And to reference Ocean's Eleven again, there is a famous line that Andy Garcia says to Brad Pitt's character, after Pitt and the gang steal his money. Andy Garcia's character was loosely based off of Steve Wynn. The line is, if you should be picked up trying to buy a $100,000 car in Newport Beach next week, I am going to be supremely disappointed. In May of 1994, the three kidnappers went on trial. Because Kevin Wynn was never taken over state lines, there was no kidnapping charge for them, but they were accused of extortion by kidnapping, along with many other counts, such as firearm charges, aiding and abetting, etc. The jury was out for three days and eventually found all men guilty on all charges. Watkins, who was the lookout and made the phone calls and was not present at Kevin Wynn's condo, received seven years in prison. Sherwood received 19 years. And Ray Cuddy, the mastermind and the leader of the whole debacle, received 24 and a half years in prison. Even Glenda and Mary McBride, remember the girlfriends of the cousins, were sentenced to six months in jail. But this was almost 30 years ago that this crime was committed So all three men are out of prison. All of them served at least 80% of their time. Anthony Watkins was released in June of 2000, but violated the terms of his probation less than six months later. He allegedly used marijuana and failed to report to his probation officer. He was put on house arrest for these violations in the city of Sacramento, where he lived at the time. As of 2015, Ray Cuddy was released from prison and remained in Las Vegas. He would be 75 years old today. No report as to Jake Sherwood's whereabouts. The Hard Rock International brand bought the Mirage Hotel late last year for $1.075 billion. It will eventually open a guitar-shaped Las Vegas strip property. Under the terms of the purchasing agreement, MGM Resorts will keep the Mirage name and brand while licensing it royalty-free for up to three years while it finalizes the rebranding. Steve Wynn is currently 79 years old and is almost totally blind because of his macular degeneration. 
In October of last year, he listed to sell his Beverly Hills estate for a whopping $110 million. He also retains homes in New York, Sun Valley, Idaho, and Palm Beach, Florida, where he currently resides. And as for Kevin Wynn, well, she maintains a pretty quiet existence. She is in her late 40s and is a single mother of three preteen and teenage children. She lives on Los Angeles' west side in Pacific Palisades in a home that has a wine cellar that can hold up to 1,000 bottles of wine. She still owns a $4.5 million mansion in the Brentwood section of L.A., in 2015, she launched her own line of cocktail slippers that are an intricately made collection of luxurious slippers perfect for the elegant woman running errands, hosting guests, and brunching with friends. She has zero interest in working in the hotel industry. True Crime in the 50 podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, Katie Accardo. Sound mixing and editing by me. Please check out our website, truecrimeinthe50podcast.com, or shoot us an email at truecrimeinthe50podcast at gmail.com. And that's 5-0, the number. If you like the podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and leave a review. Also, if you have any true crime friend fans, spread the word. If you are interested in learning more about this case, check out the mobmuseum.org events guest speaker talk, as well as my other references that can be found in the show notes. Tune in in two weeks on Monday, February 7th for a crazy true crime episode from the great state of New Hampshire. Thank you so much for listening.